Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and moms around the world. Summer is here. We are pre-recording this because we are heading up to Northern Michigan. So follow us on Instagram at Atomic Moms. There are sure to be cute pictures of us forest bathing. That's like a thing now, right? Forest bathing? Anyways, we're talking ambition today with guest Elizabeth Wallace, co-author of The Ambition Decisions, What Women Know About Work, Family, and the Path to Building a Life. If this sounds familiar, it's because I interviewed Elizabeth and her co-author, Hannah, about the essay series they did together on the Atlantic that went viral last year and led to this book. But first, I'd like to introduce my co-host today. You recently saw her on our Instagram feed (laughs) because we went to the Fred Rogers documentary and we took a picture on the set at the Arclight Theater and um, we got quite a response from that. Mm -hmm. It was so funny. We left the documentary, which by the way, everyone must see. We saw the set and we're like, we got to take a picture. But because I was with Jess Coulter, she was like, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to art direct this. <laughs> and I was like, I don't mind at all. Uh, so she's one of the most ambitious women I know. Nothing stops this girl. And she somehow manages to do it all with a plum. It's true. Thank I feel you. like that's a perfect that's word for you. Kind. You're very a plummy. <laughs> I felt plumish. Uh, Jessica Coulter is creative director, copywriter at BBDO New York. Business Insider named her one of the 30 most creative women in advertising. She was recently named the 3% Conference and the One Club's next creative leader. She's one of 10 rising female stars in the industry. Now, one of our very dear mutual friends, Bridget Maloney Sinclair, she recently introduced Jessica on a Facebook mom group. So I'm just going to rip her off because she's quite the wordsmith. Uh, Here's what Bridget says. (laughs) Jessica is an incredibly generous friend, a very funny person, an advertising creative, a director, a screenwriter, and a former professional cheerleader. Oh, also a lactation advisor and a bunch of other cool things. She's been in LA for the last three years after a decade-ish in New York and formative years in Oregon. She's also the mother of Minnow, age four and a half, and Ace, three months. So Jessica, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Okay, so first question before we call Brooklyn, how are you even here right now? How do you fit in all the things? Um, I don't fit in all the things. I don't think anybody can fit in all the things. I do feel like I fit in a lot. It's that thing of doing everything at like 90%. It's nothing's fully accomplished. That sounded like such a humble brag. No, really? Because 90 is high? No. I, I mean, I'm still getting an ten, A in everything I do. Ooh, the but. 10% is like haven't showered in four days. Oh, you know so what that's I mean? where it's It's like an unsanitary okay. 10%. It's an ugly okay. 10% that doesn't get done. Friendships are clearly a huge priority for you. And yes. you will reach out and say, Ellie, you don't like making plans. <laughs> they give you anxiety. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to see this documentary with me in three weeks. Is this a good date? And what time works best? Yeah. And then I actually follow through and we have a great time together. It's great. Lots so of that's heads a good up. trick. Yeah. I like being like the cruise ship uh, director, cruise ship in, director in my life. And I like having other friends that are like that. But I recognize when a friend is not like that <laughs> and I'm okay doing it for them. Uh, do you have any other 
tips for how you fit in 90% of the things besides hygiene. <laughs> it's disgusting hygiene. I have a really intensive to-do list on my phone. I'm sure a lot of people have that system. And I stare at it and tweak it and obsess over it. So that's one thing just to keep everything. Like if I think it, I do it. I put it on my to-do list. And sometimes I'll even just try and get it done because it feels so good to, to take it off. Oh, it feels so good. Nothing feels better. <laughs> What's your number one tip for women who want to start a family and and charge hard in their career? Yeah, that's a really hard question. Because you've done it. I've done it. And also that's what we're going to be talking about today with Elizabeth Wallace. I mean, my number one tip I would say is to whatever your career is, try and align yourself with an older female who's doing it preferably in your office or work setting and try and become friends with that person. Try and talk them into becoming your mentor because if you can find an older woman with perhaps like that already has children and has, you know, understands that sometimes you have to leave at a certain time, you know, find those female bosses that are understanding and try and work for those people, which is hard, but so very helpful. And sometimes it's not a woman. Sometimes it's a family man or I have a lot of young female creatives reaching out to me just based on my work and being like, hey, I like your funny footlocker commercial. Like, um, how do I, what can, what can you do for me? And I always call them and always take the time to talk to them. And what I love about that is that they just randomly reached out to me and I'm not going to say no. And it's like, there's no harm and no risk in, you know, cold calling someone that you admire and Would then, you suggest saying, what can you do for me? Because that feels like a turnoff to me. It's not what can you do for me. It's how did you get to where you are? I think if you're a young person reaching out to someone you admire, make sure that you do cover, you know, how can I get to where you are today? Like, what did it take? How can I work better and harder, more efficiently? I think it's okay if the conversation shifts a bit to balance and family and the things you have in mind for your life, because all of it does play a role in getting to where you want to go. Mm. Yeah. We're going to continue this conversation with our guest, Elizabeth Wallace. She's recently been published in Lenny, Domino, Architectural Digest, Man Repeller, Healthline, Parenting, and Red Book. And now we can add to that list her brand new book, The Ambition Decisions. P.S. Mamas, it made Elle Magazine's summer reading list. We're super fancy. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to call Brooklyn. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm good. It's good to talk to you again. I'm here with my girlfriend, Jessica Coulter. Hi, Jessica. Hi. So, Liz, you have dedicated years to the study of ambition now. Can you tell us what is the central question of this book that you co-wrote with Hannah, and how did you go about getting some answers? That's a great question, Ellie and Jessica. Hi. <laughs> I think the central question for Hannah Shank, my co-author and me, was, am I doing something wrong? Why is everything not exactly the way that I thought it might be or expected it to be or hoped it to be? And am I doing everything okay as a parent, as a worker, as an ambitious woman, as somebody who wants to have a life with children and without children? what kind of what happened? What happened to how ambitious I was when I was 
when I was 22, 18 to 22, really. And we, we came together, um, as you know, when we were in our early forties and started asking each other this question of what happened. And we both had kind of come to an impasse in our careers. And I had my industry, um, as you know, we talked about this before, but my industry magazine publishing was kind of evaporating and I had left my last job and had gone freelance and had two children already and had decided to start spending more time with them and drop all of my childcare and just work during the hours when they were in school. And Hannah had just given up a really, she'd given up, sorry, she had said no to a very tempting and attractive job offer at a tech company largely because they told her that there were no flexible hours and that she would be working, you know, that she'd be working 12 plus hours a day and commuting into Midtown every day, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had some emails about this and we talked and we realized that we were both kind of in this sort of a mini midlife crisis because we weren't unhappy. We just we're not exactly where we thought we were going to be at 41. It was just kind of things had taken a little bit of a left turn. And so we started to talk to some other friends from college about this because this kind of generated from a conversation that Hannah remembered from sometime our junior or senior year where we were envisioning ourselves in a future presidential cabinet one, a hypothetical fantasy one made up of us and our sorority sisters. Sorry, we were in a sorority, but you know that already. So, um, you know, they don't have those at Smith, but you've forgiven us since then. (laughs) Uh, We were young um, and we were in the Midwest, but we, we envisioned ourselves in this future fantasy cabinet. And one of us was going to be secretary of, of HHS. One of us was going to be press secretary. Somebody else was going to be HUD, et cetera, et cetera. And, so Hannah thought, why don't we talk to some of those people that were in that original conversation and see where they are with their life trajectories and if anything different happened with their ambition. And so we had dinner with one of the friends and then we started interviewing two of the other women via Skype. And then when those interviews were really interesting, we expanded and interviewed like one more person and one more person. And then when we got to about 10 people, we thought, this is this is pretty interesting and we might be onto something. And so we thought, what if we could interview everybody in that graduating class? What if we can find them all and they will all agree to an interview with us? This just could be a really interesting project. And so we pursued it as a side project, as you know, um, pretty full throttle, but it took a long time because um, like like you and like me, and I'm sure like Jessica, sitting down for an, an hour or two Skype call with somebody who has two or three children and a full-time job or not a full-time job and is trying to find time for X, Y, and Z million other things to do took weeks and weeks sometimes for these people. So anyway, it was, it was a several years long process, as you know. That's all well and good, Liz, but I want to know, was Meghan Markle in your sorority at Northwestern? That's why we're really here. (laughs) Um, I love that you asked that. And she was not, she was a Kappa. Um, some of my best friends were Kappas. Of course she was a Kappa. <laughs> Kappas. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know anything about sororities. <laughs> Wait, three of your best friends are Kappas know, from I Northwestern. I know. We were talking to my girlfriend last night, Elizabeth, and she was like, yeah, Meghan Markle would open the door for us because she was like the greeting person. Yeah. And she said that Meghan Markle knew everybody's names, like that she was she was just on point even yeah. then. So talk about ambition. Meghan Markle is my new spirit animal when it like comes to ambition. She sounds like an American classic, yes. <laughs> She, she is amazing, and we we wanted to reference her in the book as, you know, like, here's what happens if you are in a sorority and you go to Northwestern, <laughs> you can become a princess. But we decided that maybe that wasn't the message we wanted to be sending. However— The big promise. Um, I do love her, and some and three of my best friends were also Kappas, not till senior year, and I was not cool enough to be in that sorority. But— um, <laughs> All of them are still friends today and and also really ambitious and smart and funny. They were they were like the funny, witty, sharp, like uber cool group of women in college. What surprised you most in these conversations? Like what did you find out about, you know, these former classmates? I think what surprised us the most about interviewing these 43 women was that even though they had ended up all across the country and and beyond, four of them that we interviewed were actually living outside the U.S. for some for over a decade, was that how much, even though they had not kept in touch necessarily, mo- many of them, most of them had not kept in touch and had had very different life paths, that we, we heard so many similar overlapping resonant feelings and sentiments coming from them, like... I'm I'm really happy and I have so much of what I want, but a lot of it's just still really, really hard. And I wouldn't change what happened in my life. And I didn't necessarily achieve all the goals I wanted to achieve, but it, it's been a lot harder than I thought it would. And really like the minutia that they kind of struggled with day to day that we also struggled with and still struggle with day to day that that being a common thread throughout, I, I think was the thing that surprised us most. And also that one of our sorority sisters had gotten married and had 10 children. And she was the one that we thought was going to become a Supreme Court justice because she had clerked for Justice William William Rehnquist back in the day or when she was when she was in law school, she interned, not clerked, sorry, um, and was doing step aerobics with Sandra Day O'Connor every day. Oh my God. <laughs> at fitness center. And uh, so anyway, she became a stay-at-home mom of 10 children. She birthed her own court. <laughs> <laughs> she did. And actually we interviewed her again last year and she recently went back to work after 14 years out of the workforce. Her first Two children now are in college, one of them at Northwestern, actually. And she said, I got to maybe start paying some tuition. So, oh, my God. Ten oof. kids. Tuition. She's like literally breastfeeding one. And one of them's a sophomore. And one is a freshman at Northwestern. I think that's accurate now. Anyway, so she's back in the workforce full time. So that that that's brings me to a question for you. <laughs> so fertility came up for me in the past couple of years. I had a baby kind of at the exact time when my career was feeling very peaky and I'm like getting a lot more responsibility at work and more money. And it's just a horrible timing as you probably hear from every woman. And then I came back from maternity leave and felt like 
I had to sort of reestablish myself in the office, sort of prove myself again, show my value. It took me about two years to really feel like I could start trying again and then get pregnant again and then say I'm leaving again. But I did get pregnant right away. So um, it took me a long time. And I started, you know, figuring out like, all right, let's talk, you know, fertility treatments and like, what do we need to do to make this happen? And I started getting very angry at my career and my office and anyone who gave me advice ever. And just like incredibly angry that this was happening to me and feeling like it was the pressure that made me wait. And now it's was maybe almost too late. And also my office didn't cover a dollar of fertility treatments. And I'm like, oh, you need to pay for this. I eventually got pregnant and I have, a, you know, three month old and everything's great. But um, how how are you finding that fertility plays into the ambition decisions and are you noticing, and because I'm noticing, when I do talk to women who maybe they're married or they have a partner they really love and they are thinking about kids, they're like already mentioning freezing their eggs at like 27. They're like, yeah, and I'll probably freeze my eggs because uh, it'll buy me some time. And da, 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 da. how is that all in 2018? How is that working out for people? I'm sorry that you had struggles with fertility and, but congratulations. Thank on- you. I'm not mad at my office anymore. I love you guys. Don't fire me. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, good. I, I was actually just talking to my hairdresser about this. It sounds like a 1980s word, but she is pregnant right now. And she's about 10 years younger than me. And she was talking about how she didn't have fertility issues and how she got pregnant really quickly and how lucky she is. And we were talking about this vis-a-vis my fertility journey. I didn't really have fertility problems, but Ellie knows this, but you may not. Um, but I'm in a same sex marriage, same sex, non-marriage actually, but I have two children and we, we did use donor sperm and used alternative insemination. I don't even know what it's called now, but we inseminated at home. And so I was talking to my hairdresser about, about basically just how it's it's unfair that that some people can just go and have sex and get pregnant unexpectedly and others use reproductive assisted technology and spend maybe in excess of a hundred thousand dollars to do so, including gay male friends of mine who use surrogates and egg donors. Sorry, that's getting a little bit in the weeds of what you asked, but we did have a couple of friends who talked about their fertility struggles and whom it took years to get pregnant. And this was maybe 10 years ago because their kids are a little bit older now, you know, but that, that basically these things took years and, and really they diverted their attention away from their careers because they became so focused on trying to get pregnant, which mostly, I mean, I hate to make everything about gender because I know it's not, but it actually makes me feel bitter and angry because I think that this is largely an issue that women alone face and not Mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. And that you don't hear from men who are having fertility struggles in their relationships and how that's affecting their ambition trajectory. And that, that women, you know, women putting anything on hold, either getting pregnant or pursuing promotions or whatever to, you know, it's not a, it's not an either or for men. So I, I feel like that's, that's the thing that I feel strongly about in that sense. But I do feel like that several of the women that we talked to and focusing on their fertility struggles, they 
they pretty much abandoned their careers. There were not too many of those who fell into the quote unquote high achiever category. These, these were more women who kind of were already in the self-selected flex lifer category and, or who, well, actually, actually more than one of them told us that because they had struggled to get pregnant for several years, that they really wanted to be so present for the first months and years of their child's life. So they, so they opted out, which I totally understand that impulse. And having had minor, but not major fertility struggles, I, I do understand that. And I also think it's sad to be in a position where you are forced to make that decision because I think that you should be able, I mean, everybody should be able to be ambitious and also want to be a parent and, and not have to choose. Right. Did you find that your highest achievers tended to subconsciously delay parenthood at all? You know, no, not, not particularly there. I would say that there was not a clear thread on that. There was one woman who we talk about in chapter one, Leilani, our prototypical high achiever, who I don't think delayed starting a family because of her career consciously, but I think she felt ambivalent about having children at all and met her partner later in life, like maybe when she was 37 and he really wanted to have children and she didn't necessarily, she did not want to, but she didn't have a burning desire to. And we quote her saying, you know, I felt I could have a very full, very rich life without having children, but that her partner really wanted to have children. And so I wouldn't say she compromised, but she, but she agreed to have children. And in her case, what I thought was more interesting was that she, she did delay having children but mostly because she met her partner later in life and she was busy focusing on her career, but she chose to only have one child because she felt like she could not be, she couldn't be the woman that she wanted to be at work and have more than one child. Liz, can you explain what a high achiever is (laughs) for our listeners? In interviewing these 43 women, we found three life paths emerged that all 43 women fell into one of. One, we called high achievers not because we considered them high achievers, but because on paper, they were our quote unquote highest achievers in their careers. They had a self-described big job. They were a C-suite or C-suite adjacent executive. They were high earners. They were notable in their fields. The second group was women who, whatever their career path was before they had their first child, they may have had a mixed feeling about their career. Some did, some didn't. And for a number and combination of different reasons, opted out after somewhere between their first and third child. Some temporarily, some have already gone back to work in some capacity, some have not and are trying to get back to work now that their children are getting older. And then the third path that we thought was the most interesting and that we had not ourselves seen articulated before or named, and that we also fell into, we ourselves called the flex lifers. And they were women who, many of them, even after having children, continued to work either part-time or many full-time, but eschewed promotions or bigger jobs or higher paying jobs or more recognition in their field because they wanted to 
be more present in other areas of their lives and wanted to telegraph and, and express their ambition in other areas outside of their careers, including parenting, marriage, volunteering, PTA stuff, which is big, which is a big sub theme in the parenting chapter, as you know, already Ellie, and I think your kids aren't old enough for you to have any PTA needs asked of you yet, but they might be, but it's coming. Oh, we got to have a side chat about the Scholastic Book Fair because last year you brought that up and I didn't know what you would possibly have any complaints about, but now I can talk to you about this on the side. Uh, Hannah and I still want to write, she said, she said, um, pros and cons of the Scholastic Book Fair. She still feels, she still feels wildly passionate about it. And I've called back on my passion a little bit, but we're still, we're still diametrically opposed. Yeah, well, I'm on your team. And actually, next year, we're going to be partnering up again with a local bookshop, which I'm very proud of, because that ended up being really wonderful. We did both versions this year. And next year, we're just, uh, we're sticking local. I really love how you explore the varieties of ambition. And I had this aha in reading your book. Uh, And it comes from, it's like a headline that you guys have that says, stability was my number one ambition. And I was like, oh, that is my number one ambition. I was raised in a pretty unstable environment. Financial independence does not equate stability to me. And Liz, I know that you wrote that your mother immigrated to the U.S. from Vietnam in the 60s, and you wrote that she became an executive in the very white male-dominated biotech industry, setting the ambition and achievement bar high. You also mentioned in a Red Book Magazine article that you've been hard on yourself about your lack of ambition in comparison to hers. You know, listeners know that I've struggled with that for a long time because of my own mother. She really set the bar high in terms of ambition. I'm curious, what is your personal relationship with ambition now? And what do you hope to model for your children? Funny that you asked that because my mother actually came into town. She's from San Diego. She may not know. But so she's here right now. She came for the book launch and for my daughter's fifth grade graduation. And she's she's very proud about this book launch, as you can imagine. But I really, I really have struggled with this and I did write about it for Red Book and thank you for remembering that and reading that piece. And I, I think that I have gone through a whole reconciliation process with my own ambition in writing this book and our thesis, our subthesis around ambition being something that falls on a spectrum and that isn't something that is that means you pursue the highest job you can at all times and work 15 hours a day and do nothing else but work, which is kind of the model that my mom modeled to me. And God bless her because she was able to put me through Northwestern without any college loans, without any financial aid. She paid for my college flat out, full stop, as a single mother. This is why you and I are Facebook friends. Oh my God, totally. Well, my dad and paid for half of it, but yes, yeah, same thing. She, she, uh, yeah, very similar. I, I, I have really come to a better piece through writing this book about my ambition because I, because I think that I have seen that I, I remain ambitious and that I want to be ambitious about different things. You know, Hannah and I, my co-author, we th- writing up, writing this book brought up a lot for me about our sort of synergistic 
relationship with each other and our not necessarily parallel relationships with ambition. She's very ambitious. And Ingrid, my wife, always jokes, you picked a great partner in Hana because otherwise you probably never would have gotten that book published. <laughs> um, you don't have to put that, you don't have to print that. Um, but <laughs> she she's very type A. And when she sets out to get something done, she gets it done, kind of like my mom. And I think yeah. that uh, there's a searching, and I think that that's why I'm attracted to her as a friend and a writing partner. And that I, that I bring other things to the table, which we don't have to go over now, but what I've really come to terms with is that, you know, I wanted to publish a book my entire life. And so this Tuesday, that literally lifelong dream is coming true, like before I die. So I'm really excited about that. I feel like I've essentially, aside from becoming an author, I've also totally shifted my career away from journalism. I mean, this book, this book kind of qualifies as journalism but I've shifted away from magazine writing altogether just because there is no, there's no future in that, as you know, I think, but into advertising, branded content, branding, and I'm working on all these, all these new kinds of things that I was not doing 10 years ago. And it's really exciting. And I've been doing copywriting and branding and things that I really are not that far out of my wheelhouse, but that kind of do feel like a total career shift in, you know, after my mid forties, which I didn't expect would happen, but I have kind of been thinking I have to find something else to do besides be a magazine writer and editor. Cause that's not really a viable job anymore, but being an author is, I mean, not that it's not that it's something that's going to make you rich, but we neither was being a magazine writer, but so thinking about all the different ways that I can and will rebrand my career and my work and all the things that I'm passionate about into paying work feels feels like a really ambitious and awesome undertaking for me in my mid forties. And now that my kids are getting a little bit older and are less are less physically needy of me, it's it's really giving me the time to think about that and 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 think about how that's going to flesh out. And and in our last chapter on on change, we talk about, you know, one of my subheads that I feel like that I'm living my subheads right now is that just because you haven't realized your dreams by 40 doesn't mean you will. And I I feel like I'm, this is like, this is the, honestly, the best year of my life so far. Wait, it doesn't mean you will, or you won't. Doesn't mean you, doesn't mean you won't. Sorry. Sorry. Wait, let's say that again. Cause I got really bummed out for a second there. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was apparently a 40 and slept. Don't quit. I, um, I, I literally just texted my therapist. What would Freud do? Um, <laughs> WFD. The subhead is that I'm living right now is just because you haven't realized all your dreams by 40 doesn't mean you won't. Ah, I love that. I, I love that. it. But essentially it's that a, a lot of these women that we talked to made, made pretty big changes after 42 some got divorced after raising their children. Some got married for the first time. Some changed careers altogether. Some totally scaled back. Some became directors of A-list actors for the first time when they'd been screenwriters for the last 20 years. And and that that this is this is a period that is really beckoned for change and growth. You know, not to sound too like well and good, but you know what I mean. 
Oh, that's what the podcast is all about. Liz, I love in your blog, by the way, oh man, everyone's got to read it. You've got a recipe for lesbian bathtub gin. You, <laughs> you, talk, you compare your relationship with your daughter and you say, think Lady Bird and her mother, but minus eight years. But you talk it about, you know, watching cooking shows with your daughter and baking with her. And it's clear that, you know, your ambition does lie in, you know, fostering your relationships and, you know, in living life to the fullest. You know, you've chosen a different path from your mom. And I think in reading about that with you, I was able to see parts of myself that I hadn't really been totally comfortable with. And then it's like, oh, yeah, no, wait, I am ambitious. I just have totally channeled it into creating a stable home life Mm -hmm. and that there's nothing wrong with that. And in my creative pursuits, Jessica, what would you like to add? (laughs) I mean, I use the um, I'm never going to regret the time I spend with my kids sentence a lot when I turn something down as sort of to, um, um, you know, make it okay for myself. Is that true, Elizabeth? (laughs) Well, true or false, you'll never regret the time you spend with your kids. I, um, oh, that's a hard question. I know. And what, (laughs) and, and and I mean, not just you, you, you you know, I'm not looking for you to answer this for all of us, but like, pin it on the anonymous 40 women that you interviewed. Exactly. By and far, um, 100% of the women that we interviewed who have kids would, um, including all of the ones who opted out and the ones who scaled back their careers a little bit to spend more time being more present parents, they all totally still validate that decision and think it's really important. It was a priority for them. And I, I think that, I think that two things can be true and be conflicting, which, you know, this is, this is a thing that I've been reading a lot about lately. Um, something on like queer voices on HuffPost and the Chick-fil-A LGBT issue was making me think about this. But I think, and I, I certainly feel this way myself and have struggled with this greatly. I do not regret giving up my nanny, which I needed to do financially, quite honestly, but I do not regret being there at pickup every day for my children. And it has been enormously difficult being a part-time stay-at-home mom with them and also trying to foster and grow and just maintain a freelance writing and editing and whatever else that expands into career. And I don't, I do not regret any time that I've spent with them, even when it is enormously difficult, even when they're saying, I hate you, you're the worst parent on earth, which thankfully Jessica and Ellie, your children aren't old enough yet to tell you. Liz, I got to get this off my chest. This morning at breakfast, Sabrina starts yelling at me about, I don't want you to pick me up after school. Why isn't daddy picking me up after school? I want to play with him after school, not you. You're like... I, you, you're with me all the time. I want to be with dad. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. I think I said something terrible. Like, well, I could just drop you off (laughs) at the house. Like really, we had, and I get really crushed because I was like, I tried, I had a dance party yesterday. I got both kids going. We're doing 
Yeah, basically, I turn after school into like a drama camp where we, co- you know, well, I always have to copy her dance moves. Well, some, yeah, because it's Sabrina. Sabrina. But <laughs> it's like, it's just crushing because you're like, oh, there are so many other things I could be doing right yeah, now, child. Cut to me on my deathbed. I'm like, Minnow, <laughs> remember <laughs> when we danced Lion King? Yes. I will always regret that. <laughs> I should have been working. I should have been working. <laughs> send my. I want to send my daughter out to be an intern at your um, at theater dance camp. Oh now that yes, she's Yay! Uh, You know, and she wants to, and she wants to pursue the dramatic arts. Oh. And literally, not just in her everyday life. Oh but yeah. She, but you know, I one one of the hardest things that I've had to learn about parenting is, well, first of all, I'm always telling. Ingrid's sister, my sister-in-law, who has a three-year-old and a one-year-old, start saying no now. Get way more comfortable than we ever did because all of this, like, attachment parenting and let children find their own way is bullshit. Sorry. Because it's really freaking hard to set limits when your child's 11 and they think every iota of their life, every decision is negotiable. And they're like, right. but you That's need smart. to be someone who questions authority. And I'm like, yeah, but not mine. But so Good point. I-, I I have to every, not even every day, every hour, I have to steal myself for, for, for getting some insult hurled at me. That is the Mm. most horrible thing anybody's ever said to me. And we're living the same life (laughs) and, and, and put on a suit of armor. Like I really have to to approach my children and know that actually this is the best thing I can do for them is to set limits for them and that they're going to cry and scream and tell me I'm the worst parent ever. Yeah. And then really 10 minutes later, they'll come over to me like, mommy, 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 mommy. Yeah. And put their arms around me and say, I love you so much. You're please don't ever leave me. You know, <laughs> I, I think that um, I don't regret any of the time I spent with my kids. And I think that being, being a very present and emotionally connected parent to your children. And I, um, much more so than my partner is mostly because of the makeup of who we are and how we operate psychically. Um, plus the fact that I just am more physically with present with them. But I think that it's, it has been enormously challenging, enormously gratifying. And I, I a hundred percent would not trade it. And yet I still, I, I totally do feel, I totally do feel like I've compromised in not pursuing a more corporate magazine job, a higher job, a higher paying job, more office work. I feel sad that my resume isn't as fat as it could be and that, you know, I didn't get more digital experience, but you, you do have to make compromises. And I think that, you know, one of our subjects said, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to I'm going to have contributed to raising two human beings. And that's more important to me than anything else. And I didn't entirely agree with her. I don't, for me personally, and I'm not going to speak for anybody else on this, but I do think raising human beings who are psychically aware and socially conscious and want to make the world a better place is a very important job. Um, But I wouldn't say it's the most important work I'm going to do in my life because I think that it can be a very important work. And I can also do important work like 
writing a book with Hannah and I can also do important work like taking care of myself. And I can also do important work like volunteering on um, Max Rose, a Democratic candidate in Staten Island to try to flip the midterm elections, you know, to, to flip the, the Congress in the midterm elections. I think that it doesn't have to be the most important work. I think it can be one of your very, very important bodies of work. And no, I don't regret spending time with them. And yes, I do wish I had more time to devote to my career and to write and edit. Um, and you make choices and you, you have to live with the outcomes and you do the best you can. And Hannah and I want to like, our tagline really for this book is everything you are doing right now is okay. Mm -hmm. Not just okay, but you're doing a great job and you are doing the best you can. And we're all doing the best we can. And nobody's, you know, don't, don't sit there and compare yourself to everybody on Instagram, even though we all are doing that every day, but that just know that you're not alone in the struggle and that everybody is going through this all, you know, the parenting bloggers, the lifestyle bloggers, the, all the podcasters, like it's not, everything's not as pretty as it looks. And we all know that. And that's okay. I'm in a flooded out studio. I know, we're busted up over here. <laughs> Did you ever talk to anyone and maybe left them out of the book who <laughs> sort of wouldn't cop up to having to make these decisions? Like, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't really give anything up. Like, I, yeah, I'm doing, just kind of doing it all. Is there like a unicorn out there who is doing it all? Is there, is that, yeah, is there she, one tell person? You, who is it's it? It's the one unicorn that's a total sociopath. No, fully. But like, did you ever run across someone like that? Did you meet any sociopaths in your studies? <laughs> One thing that I, I won't say who this is or whether she made it into the book or not, but one person we felt like was, we definitely qualified her as a high achiever and she was definitely one of the most on paper successful people. And she gave us a great interview, but unlike a lot of women that we interviewed, she didn't lay it all out on the table. And we said, you know, you've reached this, this peak in your career. You're probably you're definitely one of the highest paid people that we've interviewed and you, you know, you really have achieved traditional success and you are somebody who totally is a role model to your children. And do you feel any misgivings about, you know, basically devoting your life to working really, really hard and having a lot of paid childcare to make this happen? And do you feel like that's been a compromise in any way? And her response was, no, not really. You know, the time I do spend with my children, it's really quality time. You know, and she didn't say it's 15 minutes a day. We we just surmised that. And it was it was really, really hard not to judge that because it was so different for me personally, especially. It was really hard not to judge that because I thought that's like the opposite of what I've done. And how can that feel great to her? But I also really felt you know, envious of this professional success that she's had and her partner's very successful too. And that is, you know, that's something that my mom did. And I think that she doesn't regret making those choices at that time. But interestingly, I don't know if you have this with your mom now, Ellie, but my mother, hopefully she'll listen to this or maybe she never will. Um, she, um, she, you should text that to your therapist. <laughs> she's retired now. Oh, we talk about my mom. Um, she is retired now and she comes to visit a lot. And she's incredibly, incredibly present as a grandmother to our two children. She takes them for, she's taking them for three weeks in San Diego this summer, actually. She comes and she takes them for multiple overnights. 
She picks them up. You know, she came here for a week last month when Ingrid was traveling and picked up my kids every single day from school so that I would have more time to work. And she's said to me on more than one occasion, you know, I really wasn't there for you um, in the afternoons or, you know, I really was not a present mother. I did the best I could. I was, you know, she hasn't articulated it in this way because she's not like us, but she's much more reserved. But she said, I really want to be, I really want to be, I really want to give your, your kids, my grandkids, the things that I was not able to give you, AKA being a lot more emotionally present now. And she very much is. And I see that. And, and actually that is, um, a huge reconciliation of, I see that as her, I see that as her validating and endorsing the choices that I have made because she sees that now that she has the time and the bandwidth emotionally, she's giving that to me. And that is, that's really like a regift of something that I felt was lacking in my childhood. And even though she modeled this ambition for me and I appreciate that so much and I, and I will never, and I will never look askance at that. I, you know, I feel, I have some issues around feeling stunted emotionally a little bit, single mom, high powered working mom in the eighties, et cetera, et cetera. And all my friends, all my best friends had stay at home moms. And I spent a lot of time with them, you know, and I kept, I would always think, Oh, why can't my mom be that mom? That's like, we're making ice cream sundays and with M&Ms on top. And it, you know, it wasn't until much later that I was like, you know, my mom showed me how to be an executive of a biotech company. She was the only Asian person. She was the only woman in these boardrooms with all these white men. And that is, that is something not to be taken lightly or for granted. And I have an enormous, enormous respect for her. And, um, I don't know if you've seen the finished book, but I talk about this in my acknowledgments to her that she, she really was a prototypical high achiever for me. And she set that as the bar. And even though I didn't pursue that myself, you know, I saw, I saw a different way of life for myself. That doesn't mean that I don't think that her choice was right for her because I think it totally was. And I don't think she would be happy in the kind of life that I have. And I bet her hair, makeup, and power suits were incredible. I have a visual right now of this woman. I'll show you some old pictures. I'd love to see it. Um, She sounds badass. She, um, we would go to Nordstrom. um, That was, that was big in San Diego and in the eighties and nineties. And she got me my first suit when I was interviewing for my first jobs after college. Um, And she took me to the suit section of Nordstrom. I mean, can you imagine anything less appropriate for my style now? But she did (laughs) get my first full suit, um, which, which I wore to an interview for my first job at Vogue. And the HR person later told me, she was like, you know, this isn't really like a suit place, right? (laughs) Liz, I spent many a Saturday at Talbot's with my mother (laughs) picking out her work suits. My mother now almost exclusively shops at Talbot's because (laughs) um, she um, will forever be, have an immigrant mentality, AKA a depression era mentality. And my aunt, who lives in Texas, there's a Talbot's outlet. And so she just goes and buys clothes that she likes that are not in her size, but that might be somebody in the family size because my mom has seven brothers and sisters. Wow. Just to random people in the family. So my mom's always bringing me something from Talbot's and it's so <laughs> sweet. And I just don't have the heart to say to her, I just don't have the heart to say, I'm never, I'm honestly, truly, honestly, never going to wear 
anything, even though, um, even though they got that new designer and I like, and I like <laughs> that I did in the nineties. Um, but I'm like, I, I just, it's just not, it's not worth it anymore. Cause it's just a dynamic that's so sweet. And she, she really, it's her way. It's her way of giving. This right. episode of Atomic Moms was brought to you by Talbots. <laughs> Coordinates you can feel good in. Totally. It's not a thing. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Um, you, but by the way, another sidebar, you and Jessica have to talk about advertising at some point. Yes, feel free to email me. You know, she's I will. A, I'm going to, yeah, she's a big time advertising director. I am going to email you um, a link to a commercial that I just helped concept for the Mercedes-Benz. LGBT pride oh, campaign cool. this year that was around chosen family. That was super, super cool. Not to be all advertising-y, but um, it was really great to, to work on something that, that feels me. advertising is totally different than it was 20 years Heartful, ago. Like soulful advertising is totally. happening. Right. See, we're making Not all things time, happen. Sometimes. This is all right? atomic moms. Like we make things happen. We do. <laughs> we make things happen. Okay. So thank you so much, Liz. I know there's so much more to talk about, but that's why everyone's going to read the book because, you know, the limit setting that we were just discussing with our own children, you guys give great examples of how we can limit set in other areas of our lives because a huge problem we have is a lack of time and energy, right? And so in the way that we limit set with our children, we need to consciously limit set uh, with the other things happening in our life. Like one example you guys give is a mother saying, okay, kids, you can have one sleepover a year. And that's a great way to limit set or to say, Oh, one badass mom, working mama, you guys give an example. She she puts out the school calendar and is like, okay, I can make three of these events. Which three mm. events should I come to? And the kids get to choose for her. And I think that that was like a really creative solution because we can't go to these – some mothers can't go to all of these events all of the time. So thank you for giving those helpful tips in the book as well. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you're having some good takeaways about setting limits, which is hard for everybody to do, as you said, but really important to maintaining your own identity and sanity as well. It was such a pleasure. And Ellie, can we have coffee when I come to LA? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Everyone, you can find The Ambition Decisions, what women know about work, family, and the path to building a life wherever books are sold and on AtomicMoms.com. And we're doing an Instagram giveaway of this book this Friday, June 29th. So follow us on Instagram at Atomic Moms. We have consciously chosen to stay independent in order to have the freedom to focus on content that matters to us. It's true, guys. Over the years, I've had so many networks reach out and I just say no because I want to be able to focus the content on what we care about instead of chasing numbers. So your word of mouth for this indie podcast means everything to us. If you're on Twitter, can you tweet the link iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms? Can you comment on our Instagram feed? Can you share the podcast with three friends? That's a lot of asks. But you know what? I'm going to ask it because I'm ambitious also, when it comes to this podcast. Snapchat it. I don't know um, Snapchat. I don't either. I'm just throwing words out. Uh, if you... <laughs> And if you really love us, can you please write a review on iTunes? Just a line or two. It really helps our ranking, which helps new moms find us. And the more we grow, the more resources we can provide. Okay, everybody. Until next week, trust in your goodness. Live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Atomic Moms.